Well, good morning. Glad you're all here. It's been an exciting morning so far. Uh, it's always good. Eric's got his work cut out for him in the future uh, as we see all those kids become middle schoolers and high schoolers. Uh, so uh, good luck, Eric. Um, uh, but uh, we are starting, uh, or started last week, a new series where we are walking through the book of Matthew. And um, last week we talked through the genealogy that Matthew sort of gave us right from the get-go. Uh, but Matthew is uh, unique in how it tells, uh, or how he tells the Christmas stories as well. And most of what we just saw actually comes predominantly from the book of Luke more than it does uh, Matthew. Um, and, and sometimes these stories, as we started this series, we purposely try to align Advent with the, the start of Matthew. But some of these stories sometimes have a bit of a lullaby effect towards us. Um, we've heard them maybe many times at Christmas time. Uh, they are very familiar parts of uh, the gospel messages uh, for so many of us. But Matthew's unique. He tells his own stories. There's no shepherds or camels or donkeys or innkeepers. Uh, the angel doesn't come to Mary in the story. Uh, there's um, no manger or stable, cave, whichever interpretation you want to tackle there. The wise men uh, do show up in Matthew. Uh, they are unique there, but they're unnumbered, unnamed. They bring three gifts, but we don't know how many there were um, unnamed. And they're not kings, so there's no kings from the Orient, uh, as the song goes. Uh, the birth of Jesus is related very differently in Matthew. And then in the Gospel of Mark, we don't even have the birth stories. And then John, he kind of theologizes almost the birth story by talking about the word made flesh. And so here we have these familiar stories a little bit in Matthew. Matthew's going to focus on a few things, but I think Matthew's going to keep doing some of the stuff we talked about last week. Matthew definitely um, took some time to unpack a genealogy, but he wrote um, one of the most peculiar genealogies in history. Um, if you're trying to trace a pedigree of a Jewish bloodline, you didn't do a very good job. Um, if you were Matthew, you included uh, just about every non-Jew in the bloodline that you possibly could in the story. Uh, you included some of the worst moments in Israel's history, whether it's the, the, the betrayal of King David by having Uriah killed um, or uh, by the Babylonian captivity. Uh, Matthew goes out of his way uh, to highlight some of, some of the more sordid moments uh, in Israel's history as if to invite you as a reader, as a listener in. Because Matthew himself was a bit of an outsider. He would have not fit into the traditional genealogy of the tree himself, uh, kind of sold out his own people. And yet the, the message I think he's starting us with is this Jesus, this Messiah is different. And he is part of a, a story of God that involves inviting in those who didn't belong uh, to be part of the center of the story. And I think the same will continue today as we encounter uh, Jesus's parents uh, for all intents and purposes. Now I know his dad's not really Joseph, but um, we're going to encounter the storyline and the conflict because guess what? The Christmas stories that we get are probably a lot messier than we tend to read them as. There's a lot more scandal to it. Uh, there's probably a lot more, I'm going to slightly center myself. Um, there's probably a lot more um, sort of maybe honor-shame dynamics are going on in the storylines. Um, even Matthew reads more like an action thriller uh, as we sort of get into the next chapter where there's a king and he wants to kill everybody and they got to flee town. Um, it's a little more, uh, the soundtrack would be less um, sentimental than we tend to think of these storylines. Let me pray for us uh, and we'll be in Matthew 1 starting at verse 18 and through the rest of the chapter today. God, I do pray for this morning, and I pray that we see these stories as you tell them. 
through Matthew. And um, God, help us enter in to understand them well, to understand maybe what you're um, doing and telling uh, your people through um, this birth story as opposed to how Luke may tell it. And God, we're thankful. We're thankful for um, some of the names that are given in this, in this reading. God, I pray that um, they may be for us um, truth, not only about you, but about what it means to us. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Now, last week, uh, as we said, we, we opened with the genealogy, but the word uh, really in the Greek uh, that gets translated as genealogy is actually just the word genesis. It means the origins. And so Mark, or Matthew's book starts with the genesis of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the, the, the origins is really what it's saying. Now, in verse 18, which um, let me read actually the whole passage through, and then we'll, we'll come back and pick it apart. Uh, well, let me start at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been to betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So this section, this uh, starting at verse 18, actually opens once again with the word Genesis. We get a translation that says birth in the ESV, but the word there is simply, now the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the origin of Jesus Christ took place this way. I think once again, um, as I said, Matthew is going to um, draw on a lot of Jewish influences. Um, he's going to write to a Jewish audience in a very Jewish way. And I think right from the get-go, he doesn't make it as obvious as, as John, who says in the beginning was the word. He doesn't draw on um, verse one of Genesis the same way. But by this point in history, um, most of the Greek-speaking world, which is what Matthew is written in, Genesis was called the book of Genesis. And Matthew to open his commentary or his uh, story of who this Jesus is by saying, this is the Genesis of Jesus. This is the Genesis. And he does it twice now. And not only that, but we're going to see a few other hints that Matthew is purposely drawing our eyes back to the start, this formation, this uh, new Torah as he will present it. Now, we end up with a couple who is betrothed. Now, betrothal in their day is a little different than sort of the engagement period in our days. Uh, most of their mar marriages are arranged. Uh, so uh, Mary's parents and Joseph's parents at some point um, probably knew each other long before these kids hit puberty, um, had probably negotiated in some ways this uh, marriage. Um, there's usually money and land and other things exchanged uh, for um, how these marriages worked. And so this was likely an arranged marriage between these two. And uh, at some point, there's the formal agreement. There's a formal agreement that they will be betrothed. And uh, at that point, by the legal status, they are married, which we see in the text. Uh, Joseph ultimately decides he needs to file for a divorce because this betrothal period was looked at as if you were legally now married together. 
There would eventually be a public ceremony, and at that point, the consummation of the marriage would happen. Um, So at this point, um, it was uh, unlikely, it shouldn't have happened, that she should have been found pregnant. It wasn't against the law, should Joseph and Mary have gotten pregnant together, um, but it would have been looked upon culturally as extremely shameful for them to have chose to do that. Now, who's from small town anywhere in America, right? Okay, unwed mother, unwed girl, teenage girl gets pregnant, what is the cultural norm in small towns where gossip runs the gamut, right? What's the norm? Shame, guilt, uh, yeah, there's ostracize them, Um, there's all that kind of stuff. Not saying it's right, but that would have been so much more of the cultural norm. And that's just small town America, which is not even that shame and guilt culture-ish, or shame and honor culture-ish as other cultures can be. Uh, But in our world, where small towns are small towns, and Nazareth and Bethlehem are not much of significant places, uh, that this this would have been uh, the reception that they would have had. This would have been a reception for a teenage, uh, not yet formally married girl to experience uh, in her day. Now, before we move on, Matthew gives us very little on Mary. Um, there's, Luke spends all of his time talking about Mary, and Matthew doesn't. But I at least want to make uh, this statement about Mary. Uh, Amy Joseph says, I'm so thankful for Mary's example of living as a favored one. As a human, she sought to obey and trust God, and in so doing, she brought the ultimate favored one into this world the only perfect obedient one, in whom both she and we trust. Yet as we learn from Mary's own life, being favored doesn't exempt us from confusion, pain, suffering, and grief. Rather, being the favorite of God invites us into a lifetime of walking by faith and not by sight. And so we see an introduction, um, and Luke will call her favored, like she is favored in this moment. But this favoring has likely introduced a lot of drama into Mary's life. A lot of ostracization, a lot of grief, and we'll see some of that as we go. Now, I want to notice a few more literary tools that Matthew is employing. He mentions the Holy Spirit twice in just his opening texts. And he could say, she's pregnant by God's power, or by Yahweh, by Yahweh, she is pregnant. But can you think of another story? We've already encountered the term Genesis twice in this text, and we're going to see it continue But another story where the Spirit is the one working to create and sustain life uh, where there might not otherwise be life. Where else do we encounter that? Yeah, right? Genesis Genesis 1. It's like the starting point of the storyline is that there's an unformed and void, empty sort of world. And that the Holy Spirit that's hovering over and God's creative work and power enters in uh, ultimately to create this beautiful garden and space for humanity to strive. What was empty has been given form and life. That's what the Spirit does. Actually, uh, God breathes, and the same word for spirit there, into Adam to bring life. And what happened at the birth of Jesus is not um, Matthew trying to express how the Holy Spirit might have gotten her pregnant or anything along those lines. I don't think that's the goal. I think what Matthew is after is to talk about creation, talk about this new movement of God, this new creation, this generation of life where there was none, and the Holy Spirit is there at this genesis moment of the start of the storyline. And once again, there's only one other person in history who has not been born a man. Who is that? Adam. And now we get another one, this sort of, as what Paul will call him, a second Adam into the storyline in this new Jesus. And maybe he will accomplish what the first Adam never could. 
That's what Matthew is all doing. There's all these little literary pieces that Matthew is employing. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So does it sound like Joseph believed Mary? If she told him, hey, I'm pregnant and this was the Holy Spirit, right? No. And probably rightfully so, right? I don't know about you, but if someone's like, if, if my wife before we got married was like, hey, I'm pregnant and the Holy Spirit did this, I'd be like, Okay, sure. Because um, that, I mean, that had never really happened in history. This would have been the first time. And certainly Joseph's like, okay. And, and, and maybe he doesn't believe her. He's, he's rejecting it. Maybe he thought at the time Rome was in power, um, women would have been raped. Uh, and so that could have been the scenario that he thought played out, whatever it may have been. But Joseph is described here as, as a just individual. And what he wants to do is obey the Torah, which would allow him to file for a divorce, given the scenario, but also a very honorable individual because he doesn't want to bring shame upon Mary unnecessarily. He doesn't want to drag her through the mud. He doesn't want to uh, make anything worse for her and decides to do it uh, in a way that would not be shameful for her. And so uh, to allow her to maintain whatever dignity he can. And so Joseph seems like a pretty good individual. Like I said, at some point, you have a pregnant teenage girl, not fully wed, and there's tension. There's conflict introduced to the storyline right from the get-go. We shrug it off, but as I said, an honor-shame world for Mary, this would include a ton and ton of hardships for them. Because there's only a few options of how this plays out, right? Either one, Mary insists to everyone publicly, look, this is the Holy Spirit's work. I need you to know this. I didn't do anything, just the Holy Spirit favoring me. What do you think most people's reaction would be to that? Same as Joseph, right? It would be the same thing of going, okay, Mary, sure. Um, That would have been uh, one. Or Mary doesn't really say anything. She just doesn't really disclose the information about who the Father really is. Um, But what would the crowd reaction be to that too? It would still be shame, like, she still shouldn't have done it in their eyes. So Joseph's reaction would probably be the same, as, a, as I pointed out. And, and so you see the play out of this. There's some ways that Jesus sort of gets identified a, a bit as what's called a, a mumser or a mamser, this sort of outsider, this kind of bastard kid um, throughout the Gospels. But I would even argue, just to draw to the Christmas stories, in Luke, when there's no room at the inn, I would argue it's probably because of this very concept. Uh, Mary and Joseph are in their family's hometown. And families think people were way less transient back then. And so your family hometown is probably still your family's hometown back then. And so they go to where their family is, and there's nowhere to stay. The word in, like, is not a great translation. It wouldn't have meant. There's another word for, like, a place you can pay to stay. Uh, The word in there is not that. It's, like, really any guest room. And so there's no guest rooms for a teenage pregnant woman to stay in, in a culture of hospitality where her family would have lived in that town. And so for there not to be that, I would argue one of the things that that storyline is telling me is that the, the shame of her being pregnant was so legit that her family has ostracized her up to this point. And so that's sort of what we are experiencing. Now, some of that's conjecture, but I think it, it could be drawn out of, by the very scenario of the text. It would have been uncommon for you to be in your family's hometown as a pregnant teenager and not have the 16-year-old older brother get kicked to the stable and you get a place in the guest room. 
Anyways, so we're introduced to this unique situation of the birth of Jesus, and there have been miraculous conceptions in the past. We've had Abraham and Sarai get pregnant, or uh, Abraham and Sarai get pregnant, Hannah, others, but we've never seen one like this, where there's no biological father. So what's going to happen? As I said, there's tension introduced to the storyline. What is going to be God's statement or assurance to these characters in, in sort of this unexpected and circumstantially hard moment? Well, we get a few statements. So let's start at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So who's having this dream? Joseph. Do we know another Joseph that does some dreaming? Yeah. And, and we will see Joseph do a few more dreams as chapters one and two go. And so once again, where, where is the Joseph dreaming story? What book is that found in? Cool. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that there wasn't literally a Joseph who dreamed. I think that there was. But I think Matthew, once again, is bringing this out, drawing, making sure he includes these elements in the storyline to help keep us drawing back once again. And not only that, but a dream uh, that Joseph had, and then he tells other people about it, and no one seems to believe him. Right? And so I would argue the same thing happens here just as much as it happened back then. And he's named Jesus, uh, which really uh, is the word Yeshua uh, in, in the Greek. Uh, and that's even a shortened form of Joshua. It's almost like calling him Josh um, that, that, at that point. Um, at some point, English or uh, Greek went to Latin. Latin went into German. And we got J's and S's and everything else add to it. Uh, but Yeshua would have been his name. And the version of that, the, the real meaning of that is Yahweh saves. It's sort of a compound uh, name to say Yahweh saves. Okay, so the name's Yahweh saves. Who's going to save? Yahweh, right? Yahweh. And then what did Matthew go on? Call him Jesus. Yahweh saves. For he will save his people from their sins. Okay, who's the he then? Jesus, right? So Jesus saves or Yahweh saves? Yes right? And that's what Matthew is doing. Matthew is not necessarily going to this long claim about how Jesus was fully man and fully God and trying to unpack that all. No, he simply starts this by making these, not even that coded references by saying, look, name him Yahweh saves because this Jesus is going to save people from his sin. And so right from the get-go, Matthew's making God Yahweh claims that this is the Yahweh taking on flesh, being born into this world. Let's notice something else in the text. At least the start of Matthew's story here. Who, who are, so it says he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? You are a Jew reading a book written by a Jew, and you just had a genealogy that's a very Israelite genealogy. Who are his people? Israelites, yeah, right, Jews, right? That's how it, it would have been initially interpreted. And even if you were an outsider and you hear the story, this is about the Jewish God doing a Jewish Messiah thing. And so the initial text here will be read as his people, the Israelites. Now, we'll get to how Matthew will eventually unpack that into something greater. But what is he saving them from? Rome? Herod? Which is what everybody expected the Messiah to do. But Matthew comes out right from the get-go and says he will save his people from their sins. And so this is sort of the, 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 the goal, the, one of the, 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 
the very identities of Jesus, is what he's going to accomplish. And it's not necessarily going to be kicking Rome out of town. It's not necessarily going to be driving Herod out or setting everything in the temple practices right. It will be to deliver his people from their own brokenness. And once again, we see the Holy Spirit sort of mentioned here uh, again. Um, and it's the Holy Spirit is going to do the work of bringing Jesus inside of Mary. It's the Holy Spirit's going to do this work. It's the Holy Spirit's going to do this work. And, and it's sort of emphasized throughout it as if to draw our attention to go, God is doing and orchestrating all of this stuff. He's like, Joseph, I need you to know it is me orchestrating this stuff. And that's what the Spirit does. It brings about God's presence in us as well. It's the, it's the very thing that does the work. Dale Bruner says, the, the permanent value of the creedal doctrine of the Spirit's conception of Jesus in the Virgin Mary. So, Jesus being born in Mary, he should have just said it that way, is this. It is the Holy Spirit and not human initiative that brings Jesus into personal life. Then Mary's, now ours. When Jesus Christ comes to anyone in history, even in his advent coming to Mary, it is always the work of the Spirit, not a human preparation or enterprise. Every, conversa- every conversion is a virgin birth. With human beings, this new life is possible, but with God, absolute, or impossible, but with God, absolutely everything is possible. And so we see the impossible coming true in this Mary. It's the work of the Spirit. In a recognition that, um, that he is born to deal with sin, that in the midst of their longing, all the things that they long for, they long for them to be delivered from Rome. They long for them to uh, kick out sort of some of the Gentile influences. They long for uh, Herod to not be on his throne. They long for the Sadducees to get their act together. They long for this. But what they ultimately got was the one they needed the most, which is the one who would save them from their sins. I love... Um, Behold the Lamb, I mentioned it last week, but Andrew Peterson's sort of Christmas concert thing that he does. And if you haven't listened to it, listen to it. And there's, there's a concert coming up next weekend if you really want to go see them live. Not, not that I'm, I'm doing a plug like I get money from them, but um, Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb is amazing. Uh, and I have one song leading up to the, the birth of Jesus, and it's called Deliver Us. And it says, Our enemy, our captor, is no pharaoh on the Nile, Our toil is neither mud nor brick nor sand. Our ankles bear no calluses from chains. Yet, Lord, we are bound. Imprisoned here, we dwell in our own land. Deliver us, deliver us. O Yahweh, hear our cry. And gather us beneath your wings tonight. And the song will point out that it's not not Pharaoh that keeps us in chains, but it's our own sin. It's the problem of humanity. It's the problem of what's wrong with, with all of us. And as we see from Matthew to set up this gospel is to say this is one of the main accomplishments. You know, there's a lot of ways to define sin. Um, I would argue that it's our failure as humanity to image the very God that we were created in the likeness of, to reflect. And we all fail at doing this. We all fail at living into the image of God designed for all of us. And we often have no problem particularly identifying the fact that humanity is pretty broken in and of itself. There's a lot of bad stuff that still happens in this world. And the Bible gives us a diagnosis, saying this is the problem and also the thing that Jesus has come to rescue us from. Now the problem is sometimes when we think very personally, we start examining our own motives, our own thoughts, our own feelings, 
That's often the moments where um, we start minimizing certain sins. We conveniently, the lines of good and evil um, are often very clear about other people's problems, but not so clear when it comes to ourselves. But the story of Jesus does point to the fact that we are in need of deliverance. That's what Matthew claims right from the get-go, that you and me, the solution to the human problem can only come from outside of us. And we've shown both through the Old Testament and plenty of our history that we do a pretty crummy job trying to fix our own problems all the time. Education, technology, teachings on tolerance or politics, just be kind to others, love is love, just do good, that, that we think that'll solve it. But it ends up being quite an illusion. Just about every sociologist says the, the wickedness of, of the world doesn't seem to be getting any better, no matter how much we think we're progressing. The sort of ideas of just be good, act, acts of goodness, sometimes it's just hopeless naivety. And I'm all for doing good. I think as believers, we are absolutely called to do that. But the sort of idea that that's just going to accomplish the, the fixing of humanity is, is, is not the reflection of what God diagnoses for us. Because here's the thing. We're all selective at doing good. Certain times, with certain people, when it's convenient often. But we're all sort of a mixed bag of good and evil to begin with. And just calling us to do good sometimes ignores the fact that even most of our conflict in this world is everybody trying to just do the good as they see it, right? Let's just use a kind of extreme example. So you have, let's take Islamic terrorists that want to bomb something. In their minds, they don't think I'm doing something wicked. They think they're doing something good. And then the U.S. government coming along and saying, no, we need to bomb them in response. And there's playing in the U.S. government that thinks they're doing good and doing the right thing. And then a bunch of pacifists are protesting, thinking that's an unway, unjust way to actually respond to it, who all think they're doing good and protesting the bombings of anybody, right? That's just how the world operates, is that we all tend to function with our own sort of lenses of what exactly is the good or the bad, and even in all of our attempts to do the good, it causes problems. And at some point, we need something outside of us to reconcile and to deal with that. As much as Joshua, the first one, was given the task of conquering the promised land itself, this Joshua and Jesus will be given the task of conquering sin and death itself. And it's going to do those by being God with us. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I want to do a very brief teaching on prophecy and maybe how Matthew sometimes uses it, um, because Matthew's a bit unique. Uh, so once again, he's got a Jewish audience. Uh, if you were a 13 and older Jew, you would likely have all the Torah memorized and usually a decent chunk of the prophets, Right? I don't know what we're doing with our kids nowadays, but it wasn't that. Uh, and um, they would memorize so much scripture. And so when, when a, a writer like Matthew writes, I, I would argue it'll start feeling like every verse has another Old Testament reference in it. It'll just be all over the place. And there are also times where he stops and goes, this was to fulfill so-and-so. Now, Matthew's unique that almost every time he does that, it's a verse that no one expected to be about the Messiah. 
It's almost always some random verse. Like, and he's going to do this in the very next chapter. He's going to get to uh, them going down to Egypt and coming back. And he quotes Hosea saying, this was to fulfill uh, out of Egypt I call my son. Which, if you read that passage in Hosea, has nothing to do with anything messianic. And no one thought it did. It was like a very specific thing about a specific time. And Matthew will constantly do this throughout his book. And I think this is one of those examples right from the get-go. He's quoting Isaiah, and this verse, in this context, is predicting that King Ahaz, that before the, this Alma, which is a, where we translate the word virgin, which means young woman, but it can mean virgin, it's not a big deal. People try to make a bigger deal of it than it is. This, this Alma, as yet unconceived and unborn child, would be, this child would be old enough to choose good and refuse evil. And then the Syrian and the northern kingdom would lose their kings, and Assyria would attack Judah. That's, there will be a child, and that will be all the things that come to pass to let them know that God is with them and ultimately in their deliverance from their oppressors. That's, that's how Isaiah reads. If you read that whole chapter in Isaiah, which all came to pass in the 8th century BC. Cool. Hopefully I'm not like blowing your mind right now. But, but at some point, these, these Messianic writers who are writing this text, it's, it's not, it wasn't looked at. There weren't a whole lot of people waiting around going, where's this Emmanuel child going to be? And you can read tons of Jewish writing, and it wasn't the expectation. There's plenty of other texts that are very like, hey, there was going to be this king who's going to be born, and we haven't seen him yet. But Matthew will constantly be like, this is to fulfill this prophecy. And all the Jewish people are like, well, well that's, we weren't waiting for that prophecy to be fulfilled. That prophecy was already fulfilled. And I think Richard Hayes sort of picks up on this quite a bit. And he says, Matthew is not merely looking for a random Old Testament proof text that Jesus might somehow fulfill. But rather, he's thinking through the shape of Israel's story and linking Jesus' life to the key passages that promise God's unbreakable, redemptive love for his people. As if Matthew is picking up on this, this promise back then of God being with his people, saying those days that Isaiah talked about are upon us again, or are already upon us. Here we are. There's oppressive captors. They're, we're calling for help. And those same days, we dealt with this before, and we're dealing with it now. And we were reminded then, just as much as we were reminded, Mel, that God is with us. Now, it's going to look way different in this Jesus than it did back then. But, but it's Matthew picking up on the storyline that is Israel and what God had taught them before and applying it into the life of Jesus. You cool with that? Now hear me, there'll be other times where it's like, clearly this was a messianic prophecy and Jesus fulfills it. But there's times where Matthew's going to do this interesting thing with old prophetic text. So Matthew has a number of these scenarios, but Matthew has presented so much to us already. Jesus is equated with Yahweh in sort of this statement around Yahweh saves and he will deliver us from our sins. And also that Yahweh, this God, is with us. Dorothy Sayers says, the dogma of the incarnation is the most dramatic thing about Christianity, and indeed the most dramatic thing that ever entered the mind of man. And if you tell people so, they stare at you in bewilderment, because it's a significant thing to once say that the God of the universe actually came, dwelt, took on flesh here with us. No one expected it. And it still should rack our minds with, like, what a crazy thing to claim. That God so loved that he came. And his solution to the sin problem was actually to take on flesh and come into this world. Um, there's a story I used back sort of in Easter. Um, it's the opening of one of Josh Ryan Butler's books. He's a great pastor out of Arizona now, um, originally out of Portland. And he, um, 
He opens his book by saying this. He said, I once had a vision of an artist painting a masterpiece. And with lavish brushstrokes and bold strikes, he threw splashes of rich, beautiful color, pouring himself into his paintings with passion on a large wall-sized canvas bordered by an ornate gold frame. And when the masterpiece was complete, he stood back and gazed with joy upon the wonder his hands had made, as if to say, it's good. Something strange, however, happened next. A small dark spot appeared at the center of the painting. I thought, what is that? The artist watched as the mold-like decay began to spread, <clears throat> like a crack in a windshield that starts at a point but gradually expands its fissures and fractures into the hole. The invasive intruder began to stretch its thin, straggly arms, creeping its corruption throughout the canvas. The masterpiece was threatened with destruction. What will the artist do, I wondered. What happened next was the strangest, most bizarre thing I could have ever expected. The artist lifted his leg, extended it forward, and stepped into the painting. First his leg entered the canvas, then his torso, and finally his head. And then, with a whoosh, the integration was complete. The artist stood within the work his hands had made, at the center of the masterpiece. That's weird, I thought. But even stranger was what happened next. The moldy rot began to attack the artist. The great painter had positioned himself in such a way that the central point of invasion was right over his heart. As the tentacles retreated from the cornered edges, they sank into the artist himself, blow by blow. The creator received the corruption at the core of his masterpiece until finally, with a woof, it was gone. And the masterpiece was restored. The artist had absorbed the destructive power until it was extinguished. To my surprise, however, the great painter didn't step back out of the painting. Having united his life with the canvas, he remained permanently at the center of his restored masterpiece. In a way, however, restored doesn't seem like the right word because the work was now even more glorious with his presence inside. He brought radiance and beauty such that the painting seemed to glow with his life. There was a sense that this was always the way it was intended to be, the artist at the center of his painting. This was the true masterpiece. It's a beautiful analogy of what the incarnation really was. The God of the universe stepping into his work of art that had been destroyed in so many ways to ultimately be a part of this work, to take on the blows of sin and death and ultimately to bring about redemption of it all. This is God with us. It's truly an amazing compliment, but one that will alter and mess up the lives of, of people like Mary and Joseph. Right? We already saw that. God coming to be with him, it's bringing about sort of a little bit of chaos in their lives. Yet it's also the greatest expression of his love and grace, even in the midst of his, the, the mess. Like we all know this relationally, right? Like think of the closest friendship or a spouse, or a parent, whatever it may be in your life. Are those relationships meaningful because they fix all your problems? I hope not, right? 
Like I've never thought about my relationship with the wife and thought, you know what? She fixes all my problems. No, it's not, not how it works. But here's what I, what I do love about my wife. My wife loves me in spite of all my problems. My wife loves me in spite of all of them. And my wife has committed to walk through life with me no matter what comes. She's not going anywhere. She is with me. She's present. And I might have greater needs, but she's not going to fix all my problems. And I think Jesus does the same thing. Like, I've never woken up and thought, I can't wait to fix all my kids' problems today. That's just not, that's not how it's going to operate. Now, I can't wait to walk with some of my kids through their problems, to be present, to make sure they know that I love them, I'm going to be with them. And I think Jesus does the same. Now he fixes our greatest need. And that's why he's called Jesus, the one who would deliver us from sins. But even in that, sometimes it doesn't clear up all the circumstances in life. But he's the one who entered the painting and stands here with us. Christmas is not the story of God coming to fix all of our problems. But but fixing our greatest need And the story of God saying, I am here, and I am with you. The greatest expression of love. That God sees all of our garbage, all of our mistakes, all of our sins, all of our everything, and says, listen, I've got great tidings, wonderful joy, peace on the humanity, which my favor rests. I'm coming to live with y'all. That's good news. I find it interesting how Matthew finishes his story and good Jewish writing tends to be actually kind of reflective and has these things called chiasms all over the place. But by the end of his gospel, Jesus stands and commissions all of his followers in Matthew 28. And Jesus says this to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, by the end of the Gospel of Matthew, who is the good news for? What does it say? To all nations, right? It moves from the, the expectation at the start that this is for a Jewish gospel, for a Jewish people, about a Jewish deliverance. And by the end, as we will continue to read Matthew, it is a good news to all nations. And what's the final promise? That I am what? I am with you. Emmanuel. Jesus closes with that very statement too, saying, I am with you to the end of the age. I am Emmanuel with you now. By the work that he did on the cross, by the cleansing of now these new temples that are our body and the spirit being put in us, he is with us and present with us to the very end of the age. As much as the promise from the opening of the, chapter, of the book is to say that he is Emmanuel and that he will deliver us from our sins and he is for his people, we find out his people are us and the rest of the world. We find out that he is Emmanuel with us and he delivers us from his sins to accomplish that. It's a beautiful gospel. That God's not an abstract concept. He's not just philosophy of something that's beyond the natural. If anything, sometimes the arguments for God's existence I actually find sometimes kind of weak. It can be hard to believe in. But I believe in God because I believe in Jesus. 
that I find it easier to believe in Jesus, that there was this historical figure that lived in a messy first century Palestinian life with all the details. And we got four different biographical accounts accounting for all the things that Jesus did and experienced and all the things that he accomplished. I believe that the world was as Jesus said it was. And I believe that in the God that Jesus reveals in his life. And I believe, as Paul will eventually say, that Jesus is the fullness of God. The God who is with us. Not in an abstract way, but a God who has utterly bound himself to a sinful, broken, hopeless humanity. And to do something with it. To bring hope and deliverance out of lives that seem hopeless. That's what it means for God to be with us. And that's the God that Jesus reveals to us. Like, how do I know that God is real and with me? Look to the person of Jesus. That's how you know. So in Jesus Christ, love found a form. In Jesus Christ, love became something concrete. And at Christmas, love took on flesh. Jesus was the unexpected, miraculous, with us God who saves us from our sins. It's the reason we celebrate the Advent season and Christmas is to remember that very fact. And the outworking of all this is to continue by faith, trusting what God has done, right? That's what Joseph did. Angel appeared saying, this is the work of God. And what does Joseph do? When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. There's Matthew's one verse on the birth of Jesus. Joseph took God's words to him as truth and he moved forward. Trusting and obedience. It wasn't going to clear up all the circumstances. It wasn't going to be something he understands. We don't even know how long Joseph lived. It seems like he might have been dead by the time Jesus was an adult because he seems to be completely removed from the story by Jesus' adulthood. But Joseph enters into the shame of the situation. He could have easily divorced Mary and gone on to live a fairly shame-free lifestyle. He probably would have been granted that. He didn't do the act of shame. Mary did. But he enters in. He's obedient to what God calls him to and enters into the mess that God has called him into. And that's what God does. And he, God, enters into our mess as well. So when we're suffering or lonely or abandoned or experience all those things, will we think God doesn't care? God's not favored on me? Or will we trust that God is Emmanuel? We trust, as the Hebrews writer says, that he knows what it's like to suffer. When we're lacking hope, if things feel dark or uncertain, we trust that he's Emmanuel and hear the very voice of God with us saying, I've overcome this world. Trust me, I got this victory in the end. So when we're walking through the valley of the shadow, that the shadow feels like death, will we believe that he's Emmanuel? His rod and his staff will comfort us. When we're struggling with sins of the past, or maybe we're struggling with sins in the present and all the ways we don't image the God of the universe. We just feel entangled in all the ways that this world is broken or internally we are broken. When we trust that he is Yeshua, the one who actually delivers us from sin and calls us into this new way of life, puts a spirit in us to say, go walk it out. You're empowered now to go live this new creation. And we move to communion which is once again a picture of God with us. I think in, in the act that it's a meal table, I think we sort of reenact uh, uh, the dining experience with Jesus as his disciples. 
and even getting ready for a banquet one day in heaven that we will be present with him. So it's a reminder that God's with us in that way. And also we partake of the bread and the juice, like the sort of representation that, that Jesus is inside of us as well. Which, once again, is a promise of God being with us, that there's, in some ways, his presence in each of us, his presence. And so, as we come to this table, may we remember the Emmanuel God, who went to the cross, died for sin, ultimately to cleanse these temples. By faith, now he can dwell in us eternally. That's good news. We don't need to go find lambs and cows and birds and anything anymore. Because none of those things could do, truly do what Jesus did. They never cleansed our conscience the way they should. But Jesus dies for our sins. And now we can be the place where the Holy Spirit truly dwells with us eternally.